Good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Aaron, and I'm the pastor here, and uh, you're here at Emmanuel Anglican, if you didn't know that already. Uh, we launched in October, and we're, we've been meeting here about four, four months, and we are uh, celebrating Jesus in the middle of Chicago for the life of Chicago. I want to also mention uh, that our good friends at Missio Day Uptown are launching today just a couple blocks over at the Preston Bradley Center. And we're so excited to see another uh, community of Jesus launched uh, in, in Uptown. So the Lord is on the move in this neighborhood, and we're, we're very excited about that. I invite you to pray for them as you think about them. We are launching a new series, a new sermon series uh, this week, and it's going to last for four weeks. It's going to take us all the way up to Lent, and it's called Four Pillars of a Healthy Community. And the vision for this series uh, is for us to, to look at uh, the vision that Jesus was putting on display when he washed his disciples' feet. And that's uh, uh, the account we have in front of us, John 13, 1 through 17. We're looking at this passage four different times, and we're going to draw out four different implications for the life of Emmanuel Anglican Church. And the, the purpose really is for, for us to grow into a healthy community according to Jesus on a corporate level as a, as a whole church, but then also this is preparing us for the next chapter in our church, which is the launching of small groups. And uh, many of us know one another as acquaintances, and we're making the invitation towards the end of this month and leading into Lent for, uh, for, uh, for all of you to get to know one another at the next level, which is in a small group, a group of about 15, 20 people um, that can journey together sometime not in the worship service, whether it's Sunday or during the week, uh, where you can pursue Jesus together. So we want not only our corporate life to be healthy, but we also want all four of these teachings to apply directly to our small groups as well. So I want to give you some expectations for what those small groups will look like and, and the ways that even you can begin operating in those groups. It also applies to ministry teams. One of the things that we're realizing is that we are now in need of new ministry teams to form because we, now that we have uh, more people that have come to Emmanuel, we have more ministry to do. We have more ministry that can operate either inside or outside of our church. So um, even though we're organizationally uh, preparing to invite you in. We also want to prepare you spiritually and personally. What would it look like to be on a ministry team? What, 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 how would it operate? I think John 13 can speak to that. Um, but think of it also, even on a smaller level, even in your friendships, uh, there's all kinds of informal ways that community is formed and operates in the life of a church. And so um, one of the things that I want to point out in a few different ways this series is that you probably have more community-shaping power than maybe even you realize. And so I would just want to acknowledge that as your pastor and then call you into that. And, rec- and just I want you to recognize that it's, it's, a, it's a mandate for you as well to, to shape a healthy community. And so these teachings in John hopefully will, will serve that purpose. Um, so I invite you now, if you've not already turned to, to John 13, to do that in your bulletins or in your Bibles. And we're going to talk about leadership today. We're going to talk about humble leadership, which is the first pillar uh, of a healthy community as we are, as we are conceiving it, as, as Jesus has displayed it. 
And I, and I understand that a lot of us have, have a history with, with leaders. Some of us have had good, a good history with leaders. We've had loving parents. We've had good bosses. We've had, we've had nurturing teachers. We've had life-giving role models and mentors. And, and so for you, if you're in that place, leadership is not a fraught topic. When you think about someone who where power collects around them and they have decision-making power and culture-shaping power, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't arouse fear, resentment, uh, frustration. But for many of us, we've had experiences with, with leadership uh, that, have, that, have been, that have gone badly, that have left us uh, not trusting in, in, in leadership. If we get a sense for someone who has, for who, who has power, we, we, uh, we want to stay away from that person. We, we regard that person as suspect. Um, and even that I even might uh, make us feel like we don't, I don't even want to be a leader because if you have power, if you're a leader, man, <laughs> like I've seen that go badly. Um, we're all familiar with the phrase power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and that is a, that's a Nietzschean phrase. That's a, that's a, it's a, Frederick Nietzsche didn't say it, um, but that's what he taught. He basically taught power is essentially bad. And if you have, if you have it, you'll, get, you'll become a bad person. If you have a lot of it, you'll become a really bad person. And what makes that phrase so compelling is that we can all um, uh, pull together some, some real-life anecdotes, real-life experiences of how we've seen power go bad. We've seen leaders um, go off the rails once they have a little bit of, uh, of power. And so maybe you had a mom or a dad that used their power. I mean, parents have incredible power over their children when they're young. Incredible power, almost absolute power over their children, emotionally, physically, psychologically. And a parent can choose to use that power for good or use that power for bad. And, um, and a lot of us have stories of our parents not using their power in a way that was for our good and for our flourishing. But then you, you grow up a little bit. You, um, I've had teachers before. I'm sure you've had teachers before. They had a little power over you, and they did not use it well. They yelled at you. They shamed you. They did something that was, was frustrating for you. A lot of us have had amazing teachers and great teachers, and many of us wouldn't be where we are today without those. But some of us have had very problematic experiences with, with teachers. And then you move beyond there, um, move beyond the teacher-professor phase to, to the workplace. And um, we've all had a Michael Scott in our life. Um, and they that just did not know what to do with the power and authority that was given to them. They kind of misused it. They did not use their power for the flourishing of others. They they kind of used it to collect privilege and get their you know it was all it was kind of all about them, their desires, and their neuroses. And so, so a lot of us have had somewhat negative experiences with 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 bosses, and then others of us have had both positive and negative experiences with spiritual leadership, church leadership. Even if you haven't had bad experiences with church leadership, spiritual leadership, you've heard about, seen, read blog posts about um, high-profile people uh, who have a lot of people in their church or a lot of people that they're teaching in their ministry, and they abuse it. They use it to take advantage of people. They lose touch with reality, and all kinds of people get hurt. And you read about or experience uh, a church leader or a spiritual leader um, abusing their power, and it really does feel like power corrupts. 
and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so I think a lot of us um, have been in a place where we kind of feel like, you know what, it's just probably better to stay away from leadership. I don't want to be a leader. I don't want, I don't want leaders to get close to me. And um, that's totally understandable. What I'm here to tell you this morning is that Jesus modeled a different way. And he, he actually put it before his disciples, not as an unrealistic ideal, but he actually called them into it. He called them into what I'm just calling humble leadership. And humble leadership is when you, when, when you have some authority, you have some power, you have, uh, you have an ability to set the tone, influence others, which we all do, and you use that power, you, you exercise it intentionally for others flourishing so that others can flourish, so that others can have life. Rather than using it for your own survival, rather than using it for your own privilege or comfort, you use it so that others can flourish. You use it for others' good. That's essentially what humble leadership is. What we're going to do is we're going to look at um, three qualities in a humble leader that contribute to that. So so I'm, I'm laying this out for two reasons. Number one, I want you to know the type of leader that, that, that I'm looking for in myself and in, in Emmanuel. Um, so, so this is what I'm expecting of leaders at Emmanuel. Secondly, I'm, I'm, I'm putting this before you because I want you to recognize uh, that uh, you have leadership power and ability. You have influence. The fact that you are alive and that you can interact with other people means that you can, whether you have a title or not, uh, set the tone and influence environments that you move in. Maybe those environments are right here at Emmanuel, but most likely um, it is also uh, absolutely beyond Emmanuel as well. In your, where you're going to school, uh, where you're working, whether or not you like your job, where you're working, and um, whether you're visiting here and you'll never be here again, you still have leadership power and ability by the fact that you are alive. It's, it's part of the bearing the image of God, that the image of God is within you. Um, no matter what you're doing, whether your life is, feels like it's moving somewhere or not, you bear the image of God. And, and because of that, you have an ability to shape the world. And that's a good thing. So this teaching is for you as well. It's a teaching for me. It's a teaching for Emmanuel. It's a teaching for you. So let's look at three qualities of a secure leader. <clears throat> Excuse me. Three qualities of a, of a humble leader um, that exercises their power for the sake of others. Um, uh, the first quality that we see in the life of Jesus is that a, a humble leader has a secure identity. Their, their identity is secure in the love of God. If you don't have a secure identity in the love of God, you cannot be a humble leader. Um, just a brief backdrop on this passage. This passage is about the end of Jesus' life. Jesus was the son of God. He came from God that lived uh, in order to connect uh, humanity back with God, to redeem us, to reconcile us, and to make all things new in the world. He was coming up to the point of his death, and he realized that the people that he was closest to were going to need to understand what was going to happen, which was a cruel death followed by a resurrection. Jesus wanted to interpret that event before it happened so his disciples could go, oh, that's what it means, and that's why he died, and that's why he rose again. 
And so he gathered them all uh, into uh, a Passover meal. And he, uh, he did what no one else wanted to do. He washed their feet. And uh, we have no good, you know, carryover for washing feet in our day. We, you know, it's a little weird for us. Um, but just to give you a little bit of background about what, what washing feet was, think about public restrooms, okay? Rest stops along the interstate. Public restrooms at a beach. Public restrooms anywhere you go. Um, if public restrooms are not cleaned, it becomes a disaster for humanity. It becomes a disaster, even if you don't necessarily like the idea of public restrooms, and I know you don't even, I can tell by the looks on your faces that you don't even like to think about public restrooms. Um, but um, even if you don't like the idea of public restrooms, you kind of sometimes really need them. And so it's really necessary that those things get cleaned, but it's not necessarily something that a lot of people want to do. Now, in the ancient world, um, uh, washing feet was, was akin to cleaning public restrooms. It was necessary and kind of nasty. Uh, necessary and kind of nasty because, number one, closed-toe shoes didn't exist. Number two, the garbage disposal and sewage disposal systems didn't exist. Number three, populations were incredibly dense. Um, uh, number four, everybody walked everywhere. Um, I could list a few other things. The sum total of all of that were that feet were nasty. Feet were absolutely nasty. And unless feet were washed, you couldn't be in the same room with other people. It wasn't like an optional thing, like, oh, this is kind of a cultural thing that we all do. No, it's like, no, you got to wash your feet if I'm going to stay in a, in, a, in a room with four walls with you. Feet have to be washed. So here's what would happen. People would gather together. The, lowest, the person with the lowest status in the room would size up who, who's got more status than me when they realize that they were the lowest status person. Uh, just like in our day, someone will go around and, and realize, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear the table. Um, uh, this person would realize, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the feet washing. I, I, it's, it's my job. And so without any fanfare, without any, drawing any attention, they would get the basin and towel, they would, they would go around and they would wash everyone's feet. And this is usually, because of how hard it was to do this job, it was reserved for the lowest of the servants, the lowest status person. So in Downton Abbey, the, who's the person that gets the servant's tea? Do you know their name? No, you don't know their name because, because they're the lowest status person on the show. <laughs> so, so, so the lowest status person does the invisible job of washing everyone's feet in the ancient world. So... Jesus goes, I know what I want to do. I want to, to, to show the disciples what I came here to do and what the cross means, what my whole mission means. And I want to show them the, a new way for operating the Christian world. I want to show them a new way for this new community that will be the epicenter of renewal for all things in the world. And so he drew attention to himself and he got on servant's clothes and he took a towel and put it around his shoulders and he went around and he washed all of their feet and then he stood up and said, do you see what I just did? I just, I, as your leader and your Lord, uh, served you and I want you to take this pattern and repeat it in a number of different ways. I want this quality to define the life of the church. I want it to define the way the church relates with the world. 
I want it to define the way that the church relates with the church. I want this to be what leaders in the church do, which is they take their privilege and they take their power and they use it to serve people and they use it for others flourishing. I want you to do that as well because that's what it means when I'm on the cross for you and that's what it means when I'm interceding for you before the Father's right hand. I want you to do that, okay? Now, um, Jesus could not have done that. Jesus could not have exercised that humble leadership if he did not have a secure identity in the love of God in Christ. Um, notice, uh, look with me in, uh, in verse 3. Um, Jesus knew a few things. First of all, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he also knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. He had come from God and he was going back to God. He got his selfhood from God. He got his existence from God. He got his meaning from God. He got his love from God. And John unpacks this in a number of different ways, always pointing to the fact that Jesus, Jesus is always praying to the Father, help me, I need you. And he's saying to people, I do nothing apart from the Father. It's I and the Father are one. We are one. We're linked. We have a covenant relationship and we operate together. That's where I get my love. That's where I get my security. That's where I get my identity. He was always reinforcing that. He was always teaching that. He was always modeling that. Um, he was also going back to God, the text says. He was returning to the origin of his existence. I find this both deeply humbling and also very ennobling, that, that Jesus is pointing his, his existence back to the Father. This is where I came from, and that's where I'm going. And uh, we don't share Jesus' divinity, but we do share his uh, share. We do partake in the same uh, life of God. We do partake in the same identity as sons of God and daughters of God. As, and um, if you are not yet a Christian, this is one of the benefits of being a Christian is that you get the most secure identity that a human being could ever get, which is the love of God, the God who is the origin of all things, the God who is the origin of all love, and the creator of the world wants to show you his love, secure you in his love, and give you a self and give you an identity that is uh, greater than your insecurities and greater than your fears. Um, and, um, and even greater than, than your wildest imaginations. It's better than you think it is. Jesus had that. Jesus owned it. Jesus always was going back to his secure identity. Now, there's something else going on in this text, which is that Judas was about to betray Jesus. Judas was one of the 12 people that Jesus poured into his whole life. Judas, what Judas, Judas was going to do something very different with his power. And he did have power, but he was hiding it. Which is, which is a problem. He was hiding his power. His power was access to Jesus. What he decided to do is he was going to sell his access to Jesus. Still happens in our day. People do it all the time. He's going to sell his access to Jesus for cold, hard cash. And, um, and why would he do that? I mean, think about that. Why, what, what hole was Judas trying to fill with 30 pieces of silver? We can only guess. But maybe, maybe he wanted to be more secure. Maybe he wanted to feel like, I'm going to be okay. I have enough money. And maybe it was, for him, it was just a matter of 
of an identity. I'm a wealthy person. I want to increase my, my net worth because when I do, I feel like a more worthwhile person. Um, who knows what hole was being filled with that 30 pieces of silver? But what we know is that Judas was going to sell his access to Jesus um, to, to get more money. Judas did not have a secure identity. He was not secure in the love of God in Christ. Otherwise, he wouldn't have felt the need or the, or the compulsion to sell his access to Jesus uh, so that he could get money, so that he could get whatever he was trying to get. God was already offering to him what he was trying to get. He was just refusing it. He wasn't seeing it. God was offering Judas in Jesus full access to the love of God, full access to the security of God. Judas was, was, was chasing something lesser because he did not have a secure identity in the love of God. And so we see in Judas what a lot of us have experienced, which is a leader taking the benefits of leadership and spending it on themselves. Taking the benefits of the power and spending it on, on their own privilege and on their own agenda. Um, and so Jesus is showing us a better way. He's actually showing us something that we can be hopeful about, that power doesn't necessarily corrupt absolutely. It doesn't. That's not something that the Bible teaches. Power is a gift from God that if we make it an idol or if we use it wrongly, it does corrupt. But that is not the end of the story. We see that in the way that Jesus is secure in his identity um, before God. You know, practically speaking, if we're going to be secure in our identity before God as sons and daughters of God, you know how you get secure is, is you is you actually become insecure before the presence of God. That, that's actually the way to go, is, is you take whatever it is that you're hungry for, that you're thirsty for, you take whatever hidden agenda you've got, and you say, God, I'm insecure. I, I, need, I actually don't feel loved. I actually don't feel significant. I actually don't feel like I have enough money. I actually, I actually feel like uh, my life is disintegrating. I feel tempted to use my power on myself. Help me. We'd be insecure before God. We'd be insecure as Jesus himself intercedes for us before the Father. We bring to the Father our greatest needs and our greatest insecurities. And over time, what God does is he makes, he makes our hearts new and he grounds us in his security. And where we are, uh, when we are tempted to use our power on ourselves, when we are going astray, God anchors us in his own righteousness, in his own goodness, in his own generosity, and he says, this is enough for you. Abide in this. This is, I did this for you in Christ. I poured out my love for you in Christ. Rest in that. And from God, we get ourself. From God, we get our identity. So that's number one. Humble leaders have a secure identity in the love of God. Number two, humble leaders are honest about their power. Humble leaders are honest about the power they have. They're aware of it, and they don't try to hide it. So look with me uh, back in verse 3. We saw before, just a few, few moments ago, that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Consider this. The Father had given all things, all power, all authority to Jesus. Jesus could have used that power to bathe his traitor in the wrath of God. He actually had that authority. 
He could have done that. Uh, Jesus, and Jesus was not afraid actually to display it. He is, in this text, he's setting a tone. Look in verse 4. He, he rose from supper. He took initiative. He had the power to take initiative. Um, he laid aside his outer garments. And he, he's, he's creating a dramatic environment as the leader, as the one with the power to set the tone, set the agenda. He created the gathering, and now he is setting the tone for the gathering. Then he goes around. He starts washing people's feet, which is a, an amazing status reversal. If anyone else would have done this, uh, they would have been shut down. His disciples tried to shut him down. Look at what Peter says. I mean, Peter says, um, you shall never wash my feet. Uh, Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Stop using your power right now. I have a different agenda. My agenda is don't wash my feet. This is embarrassing. Um, what does Jesus say back to him? Oh, I'm just a humble leader. You know what? This is, you know, this is like a, we're just dialoguing here and, you know, your ideas and my ideas and we'll kind of come to a consensus. Um, this is nothing less than a showdown. What does Jesus say in response? If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me. This was a power play on the part of, uh, on the part of Peter. And Jesus is saying, I want you to back down because I have authority in this situation and I'm using it for something specific. I have a vision for the situation and, and, and if you don't go along with it, there will be consequences. Jesus is not afraid to use his power. Now, is he, is he, is he shutting Peter down to make him feel bad? Of course not. Is he shutting him down to prove something? No. Again, Jesus' identity is secure. It's nothing to prove. He's carrying out his mission. He's carrying out his mandate. He has nothing to prove. This is not about, this is not a, about who's a bigger man. Jesus is, is laying himself out before Peter, but he's not afraid to exercise his power on Peter's behalf, and he's not afraid to stop Peter from stopping him from doing that. And again, let's look uh, at, at the end of this text. Uh, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord in verse 13. Do you see that? You call me teacher and Lord. And he doesn't say, you know what, just call me bro. Just call me, just call me, just call, just, I'm just going to go by Jesus, just my first name only. Um, no, he says, no, it's good that you call me rabbi. It's good that you call me curious Lord. It's good that you call me by the name that Caesar wants you to call him by. Because you know what? I am your rabbi, and you know what? I am your curios. I am your Lord, and I exercise authority over you. It's good that you recognize that because I want you to do what I'm doing. I want you to exercise lordship and rulership over creation through service, through humility. That is what I want you to do. Jesus is honest about his power. Now, again, Judas, he's secretive about it. He really is. He's hiding his power, which is access to Jesus. And he's not honest about it. When we are secretive about our power, when we are not honest with ourselves or others about the power we have, it can do a lot of harm. And, we, and we've seen, this is called sabotage. It's called sabotage. Have you ever sabotaged a meeting? It was moving in the direction you didn't like it was, it was moving. And so use power that no one else knew you had to, to, to stop what, what was happening. Have you ever used sabotage in a classroom? You know, silently undermining the teacher. It's, it's kind of fun to do sometimes. Because <laughs> you see, the, the person who's leading is actually kind of vulnerable because they're being honest with you about their power. But you don't have to be. You can kind of, you can kind of come in from the side and, and get things to go your way. Um, 
again, Downton Abbey, my obsession, um, the, I, one thing that really bugs me about the show, but also intrigues me, is that, um, is that uh, the clergy um, have the outward uh, expression of, 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 of spiritual authority, but the ones who really exercise it is the ones with the money. And especially, like, I see this dynamic with, um, was it Lady Grantham, you know? Just, you know, and so she, she's got a way, she wants to move the clergy, and so basically they're going to do whatever she wants. The Dowager Countess. She's got, she's got power. She's got power of the clergy. She's not dressed up in clergy robes, but she's got the power. She uses it for her own agenda. And, um, and uh, this is a temptation for us to not acknowledge our power, because when we don't acknowledge our power, we have a little bit more of it. You actually have to, to divest yourself of power when you say, I have power. Because everyone else is like, oh, that person's got power. Let's take him down. Um, or uh, everyone's aware, everyone's aware what, what you're about to do. And so, so um, humble leaders are vulnerable enough to admit, you know what? I have authority in this situation. I have power. I have influence. If you don't do that, you're less likely to steward it on others' behalf. So number one, secure identity. Number two, honest about your power. Number three, humble leaders have a vision that is higher than their own survival. Humble leaders have a vision that is higher than their own survival. Um, Jesus had a vision for a church uh, that would, where the leaders, the person with the highest status, would use all of their status for, so that other people could flourish. He had a vision of a community that would operate in this way. And after he died and was, was rose again and ascended to the Father, we, saw this ta- we see this taking place in the book of Acts, and many of you have seen it in your own life, where um, Christians who, who come together in the name of Jesus begin operating with this foot-washing mentality. They're, they're bringing meals over when people are sick, and... Um, and they are uh, taking care of the poor, and uh, they are pouring their lives out for the sake of others. Jesus had a vision of a whole community of people who would operate the same way Mother Teresa operates, people who, who have a vision for the sick man who is, is lying on the streets of Calcutta. No, this isn't a sick man. This is someone who is filled with the, with the image of God and the life of God, and it is my deep honor to care for him and care for Jesus in the same way. I, I see him, I see Jesus. I can't tell the difference between the two. I'm going to pour out my life for this person. Jesus had a vision of a community like that, of a community that would serve one another, of the people who had the greatest power would, would just pour it out all the time. They would be pouring it out, laying it out, investing it, exercising it, so that other people could flourish. And he carried that vision inside of him, and then he shared it with people because he wanted people to share in that vision. Now, again, Judas, he didn't have a vision. He had an agenda. And it, he wasn't sharing it. He was hiding it. Judas had an agenda for his own survival. And he was using the accumulation of his privilege on himself so that he could just survive, so that he could just have a better life. And he was hiding his agenda. Jesus was carrying a vision that would outlast him and he was sharing it with people so that they could share in it. Um, I had one of the uh, most amazing people I've ever met is a guy named General Al Gray. 
he started out in the Marine Corps as a private, so he was an enlisted guy. Um, and um, he, uh, he fought in the Korean War, fought in World War II, fought in the Korean War, worked his way up, became an officer, which is, which is rare. You know, you go from enlisted to officer, that's a huge status jump. He went all the way up to commandant. He was, he was uh, in the 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, the supreme commander of the Marine Corps, having started out as a, as a private. And what General Gray showed his men in the time when he was uh, a, you know, an officer, a colonel, a general, and, and then finally commandant, was this way of operating. What, uh, he operated with a vision of serving um, all, the, all, all of the enlisted men. And so to this day, if you go to a Marine mess hall, you will see, and, and everyone lines up, there's no rule that you're supposed to do this, but, but, the, but the rules is that officers eat last. And so if you're enlisted, you go first, and then in order of rank, it's the generals that get their food last. That's also the way that it operates on the battlefield for the Marines, is that officers eat last. We take care of our men. And a lot of the times you'll see the men then will take care of the leaders. They'll, they'll save some of their food and they'll bring it to the generals. They'll bring it to the colonels. They'll bring it to the, to, to the people who have been laying down their life for them. Um, what I love about General Al Gray is that, first of all, he's a total folk hero in, in, in the Marine Corps. He's, he loves to smoke cigars. And so, like, from the time that he was commandant on, like, everyone's now, all the Marines, it's like a cool thing to smoke a cigar um, for old Al. And... Um, and uh, he got his official picture taken, uh, uh, his official, you know, what he's remembered by in his enlisted gear. And he, to this day, he still dresses up in his enlisted gear and goes to mess halls just to see how the food is, <laughs> just to check in and meet with, meet with, um, uh, meet with the, the soldiers. Um, I was personally blessed by Al Gray's kindness. I was a receptionist when I first moved to DC. This was a job that I found. I was so thankful for this job. I was the lowest on the totem pole in the company. And, um, and I felt that from some people because DC is a very status conscious environment. And, but from the, from, from the very beginning, Al Gray, even though he was gruff and kind of like intimidating, he was very kind to me. And one of the things that he would do throughout my time serving uh, at this policy research center is that he would feed me um, intellectually stimulating books on warfare or on the military or on strategy. Um, and he taught me so much about leadership. One of my last meetings at Potomac Institute, um, some, sometime in the latter part of my, my time there, he actually brought me in with like other high-ranking people just so that I could sit in on a meeting where people were discussing strategy because he knew that I would really appreciate it. And again and again, I saw Al Gray just in simple ways pouring out his status for someone who had no status. And that's what a good leader does. Because they're secure in their identity. And they're honest about their power. And they've got a vision for passing something on that's going to be beyond them. They've got a vision, and they want to share that vision. Now, uh, just a couple words about how leadership operates. At a manual and in an Anglican world, there are three dynamics that, um, that we are called to. Um, when I, when I ex exercise leadership as a priest in the Anglican Church. Um, and the three dynamics are this, authority, number one, exercising authority, where I'm called to exercise it. Number two, submission, 
and number three, counsel, taking counsel. So in other words, I'm called to, I'm called to lead, but I'm also called to be led, and then I'm thirdly called to take counsel with people, uh, in, uh, you know, regardless of their rank, regardless of, of whether or not they're a priest, regardless of whether or not they're a deacon, listening, listening, listening. And all three of those must be in operation for leader to op- leaders to operate in a healthy way. You've got, to, you've got to exercise your power, otherwise um, you're, you're not serving people. But at the same time, you've got to be led. And one of the great gifts to Emmanuel is that we have, um, we have a mother church, Church of the Resurrection, that models this in a really good way. They've modeled so much to us. We are, we are learning from them all the time. We're always referencing in our staff meetings and leadership meetings, what does Res do? Because it's such a helpful model for us. And Rez has a whole team of leaders that has spoken into my life and the life of our leaders as we have gone about planting Emmanuel. So we are definitely under the authority of Church of the Resurrection. We're also under the authority of the Chicago Partnership for Church Planting, which is a coalition of churches that are not Anglican. Nevertheless, they've gotten behind us, and we have submitted to their council. Most of, there's never pulling of rank, but they have influence and authority to speak into our life. Um, and then also, uh, the, the man that I was brought up under, Dan Clare, he's the pastor of Church of the Resurrection in D.C., he passed on so much to me about being an urban Anglican church planter. And so along the way, he has been a godly voice of authority and continues to be. Um, all three of those, uh, uh, of those organizations have spoken um, uh, <laughs> as we have run the race. Um, <laughs> All three, all three have spoken strongly about Emmanuel needs to exist. It's time to plant this church, and so we continue to listen to them. Um, and then in the coming months, we're going to uh, establish formal ways to listen to the body. So right now there's all kinds of informal ways where we listen to what you guys think, how you're experiencing the life of the church, what you think is a good next step for us. But we're going to establish a vestry, which is made up of lay leaders that will help oversee the financial, legal, and vision aspects of our church. So they will, have, they will give voice to the congregation and, um, and help me know where the congregation is at. And so even as we're taking counsel informally now, we will, we will take counsel formally later on. Additionally, all of you will have an opportunity to vote on the updated 2014 budget when we have it available. And so once you become a member, um, you'll have an opportunity to see what the budget is and to approve it uh, or not approve it. So um, we are under authority, we exercise authority, and we take counsel together. All three of those are in operation. Now let me leave you with this. You are called to use the resources that you have for the life of others. So get your identity in God and admit the power that you have and ask God to give you a vision for something that will outlast you, something beyond your survival. We are called to be humble leaders here at Emmanuel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.